Well, like I said, my name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister here, and uh, we're really glad that you came to RUF tonight. Um, RUF is a place where people who don't have it together, we come together and we consider what the Bible has to say for people who don't have it all together. So whoever you are and wherever you are tonight, I'm just really thankful that you're here. Thanks for being here. Um, Okay, I want you to imagine, a lot of y'all are about to graduate in a month. Whoa. Uh, For those of you who are graduating or even um, not, I want you to imagine that you get your first job out of college and um, you and another person, you both get, the two people get the, their first job out of college. And the f- here's the thing, it's, the job is like, you're told on the front end, this job is going to be really boring. And this job, you're going to have to work 80 hours a week. It's going to be one of those kinds of jobs. And you're going to have to do this, but here's the thing. Person one is told that this job that's in a cubicle, 80 hours a week, super boring, this job costs, you're going to get $15,000 for your salary. And person B is told you're going to get $15 million for your salary. I want you to think, as that year, and so and, you know, just work for a year and then you're done. As that year goes by, how different would person A and person B's experience be? Like person A would be thinking like, I, this is mind-numbing this job is awful. I hate this. And person B would be like, what's up? You know, like, this is a breeze. This is awesome. Person A would just be thinking about, like, like the, you know the coworker who has the bad breath? You know, who's like a close talker? Y'all, one of the, the, the cute little five-year-old neighborhood girls who was playing at our house earlier this week with my daughters told me that my breath smelled like a wet dog. out of my house right now. They speak speak truth. Um, So the person with the the terrible breath, person A would be like, whatever, this is fine. Or I'm sorry, they would be like, this is awful. This is not worth it. $15,000 in a year, they're not paying me enough for this job. Person B, $15 million, I'll take whatever. Breathe on me with that wet dog breath as much as you want. Because here's the thing. The reward that you think is in store for you, it, it changes your experience in the here and now. And we've been going through the book of Revelation. We're kind of coming to an end uh, of our study. Like I said last week, we're going to spend a couple weeks in the, the, the back couple chapters of Revelation. And I think that we need to do that because what we really need is we need rehabilitation on what we think the reward is that's waiting us. We, th- Christians and people who have like heard the biblical story or have thought about Christianity or have even seen pictures of what the heavenly reward looks like, it looks like the $15,000 job. It, 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 the depictions in our imagination and in media and in the way that we think about what is eternity going to look like it looks like kind of a lame reward. But the picture that we're going to see tonight that John paints for us in Revelation 21 that God gives to John. Remember, at the beginning of Revelation 1, Jesus says this is to be read out loud to bless people. 
people who are suffering, they weren't working an 80-hour-in-a-week job with people with bad breath. They were getting fed to lions for believing in Jesus. They were being run through with a stake and set up along the Roman roads and had been tar thrown on them and burned alive for believing in Jesus. And in order to endure that, how in the world could someone endure that? They had to know what the reward was. Their imagination had to be captivated by this. And so I I hope that, that that will happen to you tonight. So let me read from our passage Revelation 21, 1 through 5, and then 22, 3 through 5. John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And then chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word to us tonight. And he's given it to us because he loves us. Um, We're going to pray here in just a second. But um, as we do, I want you to know that we're going to lift up uh, tonight a a lady named Christine Warner. There's a church that meets here on Sundays called Christ Church. It's a a wonderful church. It's an Anglican church. I I know some students here uh, have attended it. And uh, I spoke at their youth ministry conference a couple years ago. And um, Christine is the wife of the senior pastor uh, at Christ Church. She was hit by a car yesterday and is in critical condition. And the next 48 hours are going to kind of decide things. So let's pray for the Warner family, for her husband Cliff, and for that church. Um, and then we'll turn our attention to why, we, why Christians can actually have hope in the midst of something as awful as that. So let me pray for us. Father, we do lift up the Christ Church community. We thank you for their witness of faith uh, in this part of campus. We thank you for uh, their ministry for years out of this building. We thank you that they let us use their sound equipment uh, for their kindness to RUF. Father, we pray for Christine and we plead for her life. We plead that you would preserve her that you would have mercy, Lord Jesus. Father, we pray for Cliff, that you would give him strength and peace and hope. We thank you for the church family that is loving them and lifting them up so well. 
Lord, I'll lift up other students uh, in RUF who have lost people in their own families this week. Lord, you know all of our needs and you know their needs, and I pray that you would be caring for them. God, our world is so broken, and we ask that you would do something about it. We pray that you would be at work and that you would, as you say, as, as we see in this passage, that you would make all things new. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to look at a couple things from this passage, y'all. I want to look at our longing for home, our, the human longing for home, what isn't going to be in our home, and what is going to be at our home, okay? Our longing for home, what isn't going to be there, and what is going to be there. So um, Henry Morrison was uh, a missionary to Africa in um, the uh, 19th century. And uh, he, for 40 years, like for a long, long time, he and his wife spread the gospel in Africa. And he was uh, just a faithful, kind of nameless missionary. People um, didn't make a lot of fanfare for. He didn't get, feel like he got lots of support always. And Y'all, Henry finally was um, going to return home, and he, he and his wife boarded a ship, and they began sailing back from Africa to their home in New York. And as they neared the harbor in New York, Henry wondered, is anyone going to care? Like, does anyone even know what we've done, that we've given 40 years of our life to this mission? And as the harbor came into view on the horizon they saw a parade was set up and banners and ticker tape and a band and everyone was lining the harbor. And Henry Morrison couldn't believe it. Someone, they remembered us. They've been praying for us. They've been thinking about us. But what he didn't know is that Teddy Roosevelt was also on that ship. And Teddy Roosevelt had been hunting in Africa. Hadn't been ministering to people. Hadn't been, he'd been you know, shooting Harambe or whatever. Like, he, he had been, he'd been doing his thing in Africa. R.I.P. Harambe. Sorry if that, like, triggered anyone. But anyway, um, Henry Morrison like, gets, off, gets off the boat with his wife. He's like, you know, I thought they were here for me. Like, they, like does anyone even care? And it just kept, it was, like, eating away at him. It was just bothering him, you know, for, like, a couple days. And his wife noticed that something was bothering him, and she finally said, like, what's, Henry, what, what's the problem? And he said, when we came home and no one noticed. I thought, they, I thought they might notice, and we came home and no one noticed. And his very wise wife looked at him, and she said this, Henry, whoever said that this is our home? See, Henry had forgotten. For the Christian this world, it's not, our, it's not our home. And yet we all have this deep longing for home. I don't care who you are or what you believe, you long for a place to call home. All, like So many of our songs are written about it. Our great epic movies are about it. Our great novels are about it. This human longing for home, a place of peace, of rest and joy. 
But here's the thing. We don't have that now. Like, nothing fulfills that longing now. Have you ever thought about, I was talking about this with our freshman guys, Bible study yesterday, that we are, we're the wealthiest people that have ever lived. And even, and I'm not even talking about like America versus the world. I'm talking about like Americans living now versus Americans 100 years ago. There's a really interesting article, I think it was written in the New Yorker last year, or the Atlantic, about how people who live today live better lives than the richest Americans 100 years ago. Like, the, the lavishness, the food, the healthcare, the technology, the things that you and I enjoy is it's unparalleled in human history. And yet, we consume more antidepressants than anyone ever. And in any other country in the world. We're, our, our, our nation is, is going through an opioid crisis right now to numb the pain. Because we have this longing for home that we just can't get. This thing that isn't filling us. Look, I think that this is why, I, I think it's why some of you drink, or you take a Xanax and you drink before the weekend. Because you're anxious and you're afraid and you're about to go out and you just kind of want to feel right, but you don't want to think about it. And I think, I think deep down inside of each of us is a homelessness and a restlessness that manifests in all kinds of ways like that. We just want to be home. And, we, and, and if you're not a Christian here tonight, I, I, I want you to wrestle with this reality. Is this all there is? Is, is this it? G.K. Chesterton, um, who was formerly an atheist, put it this way. He was kind of like a precursor to C.S. Lewis. He affected and influenced a lot of Lewis's thought. Chesterton writes, The modern philosopher had told me again and again that I was in the right place, and I had still felt depressed, even in acquiescence. Like, he was like, modern philosophy is telling me that this is it. Like, this is my home. This is it. And, and I just still didn't, f- it, I was like, okay, but it didn't make me feel good. He says, but when I heard I was in the wrong place, My soul sang for joy like a bird in spring. I knew now why I could feel homesick at home. Ever felt that way? Homesick at home? You're in your very home, and yet it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Or it's not complete, or it's, it doesn't last. You go to college, or you go to graduate college, you go out into the working world. But here's the thing with Christians thinking of like our heavenly home. Because when we think of heaven, we don't think of that as home. We don't like, like, like the way we think of like a, like a really good home. I don't know about you, but I grew up for a long time thinking of heaven as, okay, we're going to be sitting in wooden church pews with red hymnals. Um, there's going to be old ladies in the choir. Uh, I'm maybe in the clouds with like, golden streets and doors and like shimmery light and apparently there's going to be like chubby babies playing harps 
hovering about me, okay. I mean, I guess that's better than hell, so I'll choose that, right? I'll just do, I'll do that option if it's a binary choice and it's heaven or hell. Like, I'll take that. But that feels like a $15,000 reward, doesn't it? If we're honest with ourselves. Like, that, that doesn't really capture your imagination. Like, I'm, I'm longing for that. And I want you to see what John is depicting here. Because heaven is so much better than that paltry depiction of heaven I just gave you. Look at verse 1. He sees heaven coming down. This is the end of the Bible. The Bible doesn't end with us flying away to some distant land that is completely unfamiliar and weird. It ends with heaven coming down to earth. Like here, where we're standing. Look what he says in verse 3. The dwelling place of God. Where God's dwelling place used to be in heaven and man dwelled on earth. He says the dwelling place of God is with man. Heaven has come down to earth at the end of Revelation. I didn't know this until I went to college. It just blew my mind when I first heard this. And what I want you to see is that what's being depicted here is that eternity, the biblical version of eternity happens here on earth. Here. An earth made right and new. We just celebrated Easter. Jesus is the prototype for this. Like the reason that we can hope in this and believe in this is that Jesus died, and when he came back to life, he didn't come back as some like fluttery, floaty, winged, baby, chubby harp thing. He came back and it was his body. The scars were still on his hands and feet. His disciples saw him. They knew him. It was his voice. He ate with them. This is the real physical Jesus. Because here's the thing. If, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. That's what Jesus gets. That's what, the, that's what your body is going to get to you. Listen to what he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What he's saying is this Jesus is the first fruits. His resurrection is the first fruit. So like if you're a farmer and you're thinking like, gee, I wonder if that fig tree is going like to grow any figs this year. When that first little fig comes out in the spring, it just pops. You look at your tree, that, that tree's still alive. And that first fruit means that there's more coming. And what Paul is saying is Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of yours. Your body is going to be risen. Your physical body in this physical world. Because, did you see what he says in 21 verse 5? He doesn't say, behold, I'm making all new things. Like, you guys used to like trees, but I'm going to call them crees now. And they're going to go sideways with like purple sapphires growing on them. And they're going to be weird. He says, he doesn't say I'm making all new things. He says, I'm making all things new. This world new. Your body new. Everything new and right. And the way it was supposed to be. Because here's the thing. God made, he made this world. He, he likes this world. The end of creation, this physical world. He made it and he says, it's very good. He hasn't given up on it. But what he's going to do is he's going to make it right and better and new. 
And we long for this. He's making, so it is, it is very, yea, verily, verily, I say unto you, it is right and good that you love coffee and music. It is, it is good that you, that you love the physical things that God has made, that you enjoy them. Because God, God enjoyed to make them. And he delights when we, when we use those things. He made, he made language that could be made into poetry. He thought of that. He made, be made into poetry and lyrics for songs. He made sound waves that hit our eardrums, that hit our nerves, that make you just want to move your body. He thought of that. <laughs> he, made, he made musical scales. He made manatees, mountains, planets, rock formations that can be climbed, coral reefs that can be snorkeled, laughter, families. He made Georgia's, Georgia Trap, my four-year-old daughter, or, sorry, she's not four yet, she's three. My, my three-year-old daughter, he made like the squishy cheeks that she smashes up against me and they smell like peanut butter. Like, he thought of that. He made your dog that thinks you're way better than you really are. He made, he made tacos and queso. Glory, hallelujah, let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. But like, he, he made and thought of all those things. He made the physical world. But our world is cursed and it's wrong. But he's, what this is saying, he's going to make it new and right again. The way it was supposed to be for you to live in for eternity. When, when people are like, man, scientists think that, like, the universe is infinite. Doesn't that, surely that means that, like, people aren't really that important and, like, we're really small and whatever. No, no, no. Think about this. What if God, what if God, when he made us in his image and then made all of creation, he's like, I'm going to show you how big and great I am. I'm going to make the cosmos that's immeasurable to you right now. And then I'm going to put you in there for eternity. You see, heaven would be really boring, it would be really boring if it was a limited space. If you're going to be somewhere for eternity in a, in a limited space, that would get boring. But what if you were in a seemingly infinite space for eternity? What would that be like? That's the new heavens and new earth being made new again and right again. Think about that. What like, I, I'm getting kind of off my notes here, but just go with me for a second. Like the Grand Canyon was sitting there for thousands of years and Westerners like never knew it was there. It was just waiting for someone to come and see it and be like, oh my gosh, that's there. That is amazing. Look at the Grand Canyon. What stuff is out there in the universe waiting to be witnessed that's proclaiming God's glory? The new heavens and the new earth made right again for eternity for us to be a part of and to see and to worship the one who made it, that's your home. And it'll feel more like home than anything's ever felt to you. And some of you have never felt home. And that's because this world is broken. And the new heavens and the new earth, see, I want you to see what isn't in it. What isn't in it is evil. Did you see in, in I think it's verse 1 or 2, like, it says the sea is no more. Maybe you're kind of bummed out, like, dang, like, that's like the best part. Remember, remember where all the bad guys in Revelation come out of? Where the, the dragon, he, he 
tries to flood, the dragon who represents Satan tries to flood and kill the woman and her baby, the church. And Jesus, he tries to kill them by, by spewing water out of his mouth. The beast comes out of the sea. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. That, see, to Israel, the Israelites, they were land dwellers. The, the sea was this like chaotic, like we don't know what's on the other side of it. Is the world flat? Who knows? Maybe it still is. No, I'm just kidding. It's not a flat. But like, they didn't know what was on the It was a chaotic, mysterious thing that creeped them out. And God's like, there's no more monsters. There's nothing else to be afraid of here. There's no more, there's no more demonic activity in, in his world. There's no more monstrous things that rip the seams of, uh, apart of how the way creation was supposed to be. That means there's no more war. There's no more rape. There's no child pornography industry in God's kingdom. When God's kingdom comes, when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth. Jesus says you pray for this. Pray that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for that. God's kingdom, there is no child pornography industry. There is no human trafficking. There is no gang violence. There is no police violence. There are no elections. Because Jesus is king. And he's a good ruler. We don't need another one. Not only that, but the monsters that tear up our families, gone. No more orphans. No more widows. I'm tired of widows. There's no more foster care system. There's no more custody battles. There's no more racism. Every child has a place to rest their head in God's kingdom. There's no locks on the doors because no one has to be kept out. Not only that, there's no more trauma. Did you see this? There's no mourning, no crying, no pain. You see, Jesus, the carpenter's son, what do, it's so interesting that he would choose to come as a carpenter's son. He could have picked any profession. He could have been like a chemist's son came as the son of Joseph, a carpenter. He spent 30 years. What do carpenters do? They fix stuff. Jesus just spent 30 years building stuff and fixing stuff. That's what he's going to do for eternity. He's going to fix the trauma in your life. He's going to heal you. He's going to make it right. You see, oh man, Richie, uh, Ricky Jones, um, he's kind of like an RUF legend. He was a campus minister for a while. He was an intern. He said that, uh, he tells a story, um, he said that the most incredible transformation he's ever seen in someone's life in his 30 years of ministry was when he was in Knoxville. There was a man who had just kind of lost all hope and, deci- and decided he was going to commit suicide. And so he poured gasoline on himself, went out into his backyard, and lit himself on fire. A girl down the street saw him, and she came, and she put out the fire and called an ambulance. The ambulance comes, saves his life, and this girl begins going to be with him in the hospital to make sure that he's okay, and they fall in love. And this girl's a Christian. 
and this guy gives his life to Jesus. The first night that they're married, their honeymoon night, he's ashamed because he's covered with his scars. The scars of his burns all over his body. And the, for the first hour of their honeymoon night, all she did was kiss his scars. Every one of them. The scars of his shame, he wouldn't want anyone to see or touch or know. She kissed them and began to heal his shame. You see, Jesus, Jesus his new body, which is the prototype for our bodies, he does have scars. Thomas feels them. He comes and says, Thomas, like, touch my hands and my feet. But what Jesus will do with your scars, what he will do with your scars is kiss them. Not literally, but metaphorically. And the thing, the, the way that maybe you are, you, shame has been put upon you, but some of you have been wounded that you will be healed and freed from that for eternity. Because sin and brokenness, it's not in his kingdom. He casts it out. It's gone forever. And so you know what is there? In the new heavens and the new earth, what is there? Look at, verse, look at chapter 22. Verse 4. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. We're going to talk about the name on the foreheads in a couple weeks. But I want you to see this. The promise that's waiting for you is that you will get to see the face of the one who loves you. Not hidden, not, not, you won't have to hide in shame. You won't have to to cower before him. And here's the thing. What we all really long for, along with him, is for the face of someone, especially a parent, and I think especially a father, to look on us and delight in us. Um, Toni Morrison, she uh, was, I want you to listen to, I want you to listen to two people talk about their relationship with their dads. Toni Morrison, Pulitzer Prize author, Brett Favre, Hall of Fame quarterback, general, bad A. Okay, anyway, Toni Morrison says this, someone asked her, what made you a great writer? Was it like all the books that you read? Was it like the, the school that you went to? Like, what was it that made you, Toni Morrison, this great Pulitzer Prize winning author? She said, that's not why I'm a great writer. I'm a great writer because when I was a little girl and walked into the room where my father was sitting, his eyes would light up. That's why I'm a great writer. That's why. There is no other reason. Listen to Brett Favre. In an interview, he said, my dad, his dad was a coach. That was his high school football coach. 
My dad may have told others, I'm proud of that boy, but he never told me. He never told me I'm proud of you. And I remember, I remember thinking, a good job would be nice to hear. There might be 70 good plays that I made in a night, and one bad one, and he would bring the bad one to light. And then in his Hall of Fame speech, tough as nails, Brett Favre from the Delta in Mississippi gets up and begins weeping when he starts talking about his dad. He says in his Hall of Fame speech, I overheard my father talking to three other coaches and I hadn't played well that other week. Um, My dad said, I can assure you something about my son. He will play better. He will redeem himself because he has it in him. And Brett says, I thought to myself, that's a pretty good compliment. Again, I never told anyone about this, um, but I never, forgot, I never forgot that statement. And, I won't, and he says, he starts talking to his dad. He says, I'm going to tear up. <laughs> and I want you to know, Dad, that I spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself. I spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself and make him proud. And I hope I succeeded. You see, they both achieved greatness. They both achieved greatness. But Brett Favre was never assured of what he really wanted, which was beyond what the greatness was. What he really wanted was the delight of his father, of his father's face. Toni Morrison, on the other hand, had that, and because of that, she became great. And what Revelation is telling us is that we will see his face. No one else in the Bible sees God's face and survives. Nobody does. You can't see his face. Here, they see his face. The the face of the one who is the source of all goodness and beauty and light and love. He's the source of it. And we will look upon him. And he will look upon you with pleasure and delight. And you will have that for eternity. Y'all, listen to me. I'm going to land this. All the good stuff that you love. See, some some of you are here and um, you love pleasure. Like you love all those things I was talking about, like music and the tacos and queso. Like you love, you love that. But those are all signs pointing to the one who made them. Like if, if I was taking my kids, to, if I told my kids, I'm going to take you to Disney World. I piled them in the minivan. We drove to South Florida and we got to the Disney World sign and I pulled over our Honda Odyssey, which is awesome. And I pulled over our van and we got out. I was like, we're at Disney World. Check out this awesome sign. You'd be like, you're an abusive father. You, should be, you are a bad person. Because the sign is pointing to the thing that's so much better. Don't settle for the sign. Settle for the eternal reality that it's pointing to. That all of the whispers of the good things that you like of that good meal or that good song or that good laugh with your good friend, it's all pointing to something that you get for eternity with him. Here. In this world made right. Some of you are here and you're perfectionists. You want heaven on earth now in your life. 
Like you want things to be made right, all things to be made new right, and it's just killing you because you can't get it. And what I'm telling you tonight is it's coming. But it, it comes not through you being perfect. Listen to me on this. All of this comes freely because Jesus lived the perfect life. He lived the perfect life for the people who want pleasure, for the people who want perfection. He lived the perfect life. He died the death that we deserve. He defeated death by resurrecting from the grave and has ascended to the Father now and intercedes for us. And one day he is coming to make all things new. And anyone who believes in him, by free grace, he will give you, the, not the $15 million reward, the infinite reward of eternity. And for the person who's here tonight, and you, you're not sure if you believe this, I just want to say, what if it's true? What if this really is the reward? What if this isn't all there is? What if this is just a sign pointing to something so much better? Isn't there like a flicker of hope? You want that to be true? I'm telling you, I think it is. I think this is going to happen. And I'm standing here preaching to you tonight because I want you to be there. Put your faith and your trust in him. Do not delay. I'd love to talk to you about it tonight afterwards. If, if, if you want to know the one who will look on your face and smile. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for giving us this vision, for giving John who's giving it to us so that we might have hope. Hope in the resurrection of Jesus and that he is the first fruit of our resurrection. We pray that the new heavens and the new earth would capture our imagination for what home will really be like. That there is a home that's awaiting us that feels more like home than anything has ever felt like. Would you, Lord, help us to believe in you I pray for anyone who's here who's considering this, that they might cast their cares upon you, that they might come to you, not with their righteousness, but with their need. Because that's who all of us are. And that's all you require, is that we would bring our need to you by faith. Would you help us? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.